following sermon was originally preached in 2019 in a series on Acts at Horizon Reformed Christian Fellowship. It's being re-released here to just further the conversations we're currently enjoying in our small groups at New City Presbyterian this term. Uh, Many thanks to Horizon for granting us permission to do that, and to God be the glory. And uh, welcome to a new series and to the story of the early church, the story of the Acts of the Apostles over the next many months. We'll work our way through this book of Acts. Actually, we're going to slow right down, which we haven't done for a while. But as we like to do from time to time, we're going to slow right down in this book of Acts, reflecting on the story of the early church. And a heads up, we might not finish it this year, because we're going to take a break in the end of the year uh, and do some other things. But uh, one way or another, we'll pick up the story again next year. Uh, So settle in to one of our famously slow journeys, uh, this time in the book of Acts. And the first slowdown that hits us is in the first few words of this book, uh, where where we read, in the first book, O Theophilus, and we realise straight away that we've missed something. We're picking up a story that's already halfway through. Well, the writer of this book is Luke. Uh, The Luke, that is, who wrote the third gospel, the gospel according to Luke. Uh, And the first thing we need to lock in about this book, Acts, is that it's really part two of Luke's book, the gospel. Uh, The two books go together. The two books are the uh, two parts of the one story. So when Luke says there in verse one, in the first book, O Theophilus, that's what he's talking about. His first book was the gospel. And his second book, which follows on from there, is this book called Acts. And to keep us on our toes, of course, I'm sure you've noticed, the compilers of our English Bible have uh, stuck the gospel according to John in between the two books. But don't let that put you off. These two books go together. Uh, Luke wrote them that way, as indeed he tips us off here right at the start. And it occurs to me that we haven't really spent a great deal of time as a church in Luke's writings before. We spent ages in John's writings and and plenty of time in Paul's writings and we quite often dip into uh, Matthew and Mark's writings, for example, and plenty of Old Testament books and so on, but really the only time we've encountered Luke as a church here is around Christmas time and that's because, well, Luke gives us uh, the most detailed historical account of the birth of Jesus. Otherwise, we're kind of going to sink our teeth into Luke's work uh, for the first time, really, in a serious way. And so I thought to myself as we settle into this book in Acts, maybe we should just take a minute at the start here and think about Luke, our author. Luke, who, although we haven't read much of his work as a church, in his two books here, he has written over a quarter of the New Testament. What do we know about this guy? Well, we know that Luke was a travelling companion of Paul from some of Paul's letters. We know that he's a Gentile from Colossians. Uh, and, And in his own words... We know that Luke is not a direct eyewitness of everything Jesus did in his earthly ministry, but rather he's a diligent worker who has faithfully compiled his gospel account from all those eyewitnesses to Jesus' work. He says that himself in, in, the, in the opening to Luke, Gospel Luke. Uh, he's a talented writer, we know that. His Greek is exceptional, we know that. He's a very educated man. He is referred to by Paul as the beloved physician, and so we presume he has medical training on top of all this. 
Uh, some people speculate that maybe he's Titus's brother from a passage in 2 Corinthians and some people speculate that he might be uh, one of a group of prophets uh, who are going to be referred to in the upcoming narrative in Acts itself a bit later on, uh, going by, uh, you know, where there's a sort of a cryptic self-reference, people think, uh, using the Romanized version of his name, Lucius, which we'll get to in due course. Don't worry about that. Ordinarily, though, he goes by the name, uh, the Greek name, Lucanus, or its Greek abbreviation, Lucas, or in our English Bibles today, uh, and our further abbreviation, simply as Luke. And like the Apostle John, whose gospel is wedged in between Luke's two books, uh, Luke has also humbly chosen not to put his own name, uh, his actual name, in this narrative that he's compiled. So what we know about him, those various things that I just mentioned, we know because other people have said them about him, people like Paul. Uh, So we don't have in here uh, the complete story of Luke, uh, because nor was it his intention for us to focus on him among the details that he has given us uh, at the start here is that Luke wrote these books uh, for someone called Theophilus. If I can read uh, just the start, this is the way he starts his gospel uh, in in Luke chapter 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And now, as we get to his second book, the book of Acts, he opens this uh, with this line in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Well, seemingly, Theophilus uh, was a Roman and of noble rank, given uh, Luke's addresses to him there, O most excellent Theophilus, but really we can't know much about Theophilus either. And yet we might well be thankful for whatever Theophilus did do to prompt Luke to write these two Gospels or these two books. It may be, judging from Luke's introductions, uh, that Theophilus commissioned him to first of all uh, research and compile the events of Jesus' ministry and then uh, secondly to, uh, to document the Apostles' ministry after that. And maybe he even funded Luke on his journeys with the Apostles in this book of Acts, because Luke is on the scene with the apostles, we're going to discover in this second book. Anyway, in his first book, Luke says here in verses 1 and 2, he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. And this is probably the most important take-home message today. The first book was about all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up. The implication being that this second book is what Jesus did after he was taken up. This book is the story of the early church that came to believe in Jesus Christ. We call it the Acts of the Apostles. We think of it as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But based on Luke's opening verses here, we might also think of it as the acts of the ascended Lord Jesus. This is the story of the house that Jesus built. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to achieve all of this for him. In the first book, Theophilus, I covered everything Jesus began to do until he ascended. Now I'll cover what he then went on to do 
And the two books, you might have noticed, uh, are joined by this overlapping bridge. Uh, at the end of Luke's Gospel, he bridges us over into the sequel to come. If I can read from the end of Luke's Gospel, you, know, you might know this verse pretty well. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. And likewise, at the start of Acts now, in the second book, we get the same bridge again. I'm sure all of that sounded familiar from the end of Luke's Gospel, because it's basically what we're looking at now, at the start of, of Acts in chapter 1. The end of Luke's Gospel and the start of Acts are basically the same bridge, the same preview, the same trailer for the, the sequel of the story that's coming up. And technically, in this little bridge section we're looking at in Acts, Jesus isn't taken up until verse 9 there, near the end of the passage. So what Luke tells us here in verses 1 to 8, chronologically, is still part of what Jesus began to do and teach before he was taken up. And there's quite a bit going on in these first eight verses. First of all, Jesus continues to instruct his apostles, verse 2. He's preparing them, no doubt, for the changes that are coming up. A change that's actually kind of like same, same, but different, if you know that old Aussie phrase. One commentator puts it this way, formerly the apostles experienced the Spirit through the presence of Jesus. Now they will experience Jesus through the presence of the Spirit. Things will change, but they won't be any different at the big picture. Secondly, Jesus uh, presents them in verse 3 with many convincing proofs over a period of 40 days. The idea of 40 days is reminiscent, of course, of, of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments from God on Mount Sinai. It's reminiscent of Elijah's journey to Mount Horeb to listen to the voice of God. It's reminiscent of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And now the apostles spend time with God for 40 days as he uh, teaches them about the kingdom and gives them many convincing proofs. Proofs that were witnessed by more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at one point as the Apostle Paul explained in our reading in Corinthians this morning. And incidentally, all this stacks up, chronologically speaking. Jesus was crucified at Passover, and three days for the resurrection, and 40 days uh, of these convincing proofs, and then, say, a week that they spent together in the upper room, and then, bam, Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, coming right up. Pentecost, of course, is 50 days exactly after Passover. Uh, Pentecost literally means the 50th. And so this all adds up. But I digress. Uh, so Jesus instructs his disciples, he gives them many convincing proofs, and then again in verse 3 he speaks to them uh, about the kingdom of God. And he orders them in verse 4 not to leave Jerusalem just yet, but to wait for the promise that he's told them about, the promise of the Holy Spirit. We read a bit of that promise in John's Gospel this morning. 
But Luke touched on it again at the end of his gospel in the passage I just read before, if you caught that, in chapter 24 of Luke, uh, verse 49, he says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he elaborates that, fleshes it out a bit more now. At the beginning of Acts, in verse 5, he says, uh, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Well, that's something in the introduction we can look forward to in the story. Jesus is going to uh, show these apostles some kind of uh, new baptism he's promising, some kind of experience, some kind of encounter with the Holy Spirit, something that they must wait for. And in light of what Luke just said in verse 1, that this is the story of what Jesus continued to do, they must wait for the Holy Spirit because this is not going to be the story of what the apostles just went out and did. This is the story of the house that Jesus built by the Holy Spirit and only through his apostles. So they must wait. They cannot go off on their own tangent. They must wait for Jesus to send the Holy Spirit. In verse 6 there, uh, Jesus begins recalibrating some of their expectations about this story coming up. Not surprising, they're still anticipating the kingdom. But on two counts, Jesus recalibrates uh, their expectations. He tweaks their understanding a little bit. To start with, in verse 7, he uh, recalibrates their expectations in terms of the timing of this story that's going to unfold by telling them that such details are beyond their pay grade. They're just beyond their pay grade. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It is just not for you to know. And they shouldn't be surprised or disappointed to hear that. He's told them this before. For example, in Matthew chapter 24, he said to them, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And on a side note, I guess, when we hear people today who claim that they do know the timing of these things, and there are people today who claim that they they do know the timing of these things, they claim to know what not even these apostles knew, what not even the angels of heaven know, what not even the Son knows. (laughs) When, When we hear people claiming that, we should be very cautious in our response to them. Again, I digress. Verse 8, he recalibrates them again on this in terms of their expectations about the scope of the story. The scope of the story, this is not going to be the story of the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. It's going to be the story of Jesus Christ proclaimed to all the earth. And you will be my witnesses, he says. And so he clarifies what the apostles are going to speak about when they go uh, into all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They will witness to Jesus Christ. When will the kingdom be restored to Israel? Again, we should be very wary of groups, and there are groups today whose focus is on Israel. Don't worry about that side of things, Jesus says to the apostles. Just proclaim his name to the ends of the earth. And then we come in verse 9 to uh, the two bookends to this part of the story, this, this second book of Luke's. The two bookends that everything goes between are, are the ascension of the Lord in verse 9 and the promised return of the Lord in verse 11. 
Luke gives us the most detailed account of the ascension here uh, in this little passage, but of course it's proclaimed and explained throughout the New Testament and we'll read it again being preached later in Acts and, and so too the promise of Christ's return is not just actually the final bookend to Acts, it's not even just the, the final bookend to the New Testament, it's the final bookend to the whole Bible. And how is this? I don't know. I don't know what you guys thought. How is this puzzling comment by the angels here in verse 11 when they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I don't know about you, but that would only make me want to look into heaven more, not less. I'd be staring even more intently. Where? 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 Where is he? What the angels are doing here is setting up that bookend for us, the end of the story. Jesus is not just crucified and resurrected and ascended. He's coming again. As surely as you see him going now, they're saying, he will return. In the meantime, get on with what he just told you. Return to Jerusalem and wait to receive power from the Holy Spirit to be Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth. And those bookends in verses 9 and 11 there are the two poles, the two fixed events in salvation history that frame all of the tension of Luke's second book, the ascension of Christ and his promised return. Everything Luke told us in his first book fell between the birth of Christ and his resurrection. Now everything in the second book is going to fall between the ascension and the return of Christ. But of course, Jesus hasn't returned just yet, has he? And so we too are living within that tension between the ascension and the return of Christ. And so we should identify with this story uh, as Luke tells it because in certain ways this story is our story. The story of the early church in Acts, in Jerusalem and Antioch and Rome and so on, it's the story of our church. We are part of this church. We are part of this house that Jesus is still building today. So this story is our story. And we should listen in with great interest then as Luke tells the story and we should try to think about our place in the story. Think about as we read uh, Jesus uh, started building in this way, working as he did by the Holy Spirit through his people. Think about what that means for us now. But we'll have to be thoughtful and, and prayerful and careful as we do that. We're going to have to ask questions like, is this part of the story or that part of the story uh, prescriptive or descriptive? Is, is Luke just describing here what, what did happen for the church then or is he telling us what should happen for the church now? And if we too are still part of this church that Jesus is building, should we also do and expect the same things that we're reading in this account? We're going to have to ask that from time to time on our way through this journey when we hit difficult passages. But in broad terms, to frame the whole series, uh, I suggest we need to think of a couple of things and keep them in mind on our journey through this book. First things we need to note is, is the style of what Luke has written here. The style of what Luke has written here is historic narrative. It's not written 
in the genre of instructions for the church, like, for example, the apostles later wrote in their epistles uh, back to the churches that were founded in this narrative coming up. It's an orderly account of the things that took place, and we need to keep that in mind as our broad frame of reference as we try to understand this book. Luke hasn't repeated his intentions here uh, at the start of part two, but if Acts flows on from Luke then we might stop and reflect on what Luke said his purpose was in compiling all of this story at the beginning of his gospel, if I can take you back there again. Inasmuch, he says, as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is an orderly account of things that have happened. And so we can, we can safely approach this book as historic narrative. But we should be more cautious if we want to approach it in another way that Luke hasn't explicitly told us was his purpose. Secondly, I think we should also keep in mind the structure as we go and think about the structure that's unfolding as we read along. We're going to see some pretty clear patterns in this book, some obvious repetition. Repetitive patterns both within part two, the book of Acts, uh, and uh, across the whole story of Luke and Acts. We're going to see repetition and we're going to need to think about what that means, what's happening. But again, in broad terms, to set us up for the series, let me point to one of the keys here because it's, it's in this very passage this time in our introduction to Luke. The purpose statement for this book the act of the apostles, as we call it, is the purpose statement that Jesus himself gives them there in verse 8 when he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right there is the basic flow of what happens in this book. What Luke goes on to record is exactly this. The apostles, by the power of the Holy Spirit, witnessing to Jesus Christ in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the structure of this book in this particular style that Luke has written it in. That's how the book flows because that's how the historic account unfolded. Because that's how Jesus began building his church. So the structure makes perfect sense, we're going to realise, given, of course, the style here is historic narrative. This is what Jesus said would happen, and so the book just follows along as it happens. And so we'll follow the apostles as we read through the book, beginning in the very heart of the Jewish world, and then as they go into the, the, the lower and the lost regions uh, of Israel, the rest of Judea and Samaria, and then as they uh, push into the Gentile world, and eventually when they reach the very heart of the Gentile world in Rome. And once it's established in both the heart of the Jewish world and the Gentile world, the gospel will go forth everywhere. When will the end come, the apostles ask? Well, Jesus has already told them this. Uh, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. What exactly will they proclaim, we might wonder, as we get this little teaser from Luke at the start of the book. There's actually four things flagged in this introductory passage that are going to be the crux of the whole apostolic witness 
as they go forth. The so-called acts that the apostles get up to are going to be all about witnessing these four things. They'll witness to Jesus Christ and him crucified. That side of it was covered in Luke's first book, as verse 1 alludes to. They will witness to Jesus' resurrection with many proofs in verse 3. They will witness to his ascension in verse 9 and they will witness to his promised return in verse 11. Those four points are the framework to the whole apostolic mission, the whole witness coming up over the next 28 chapters. And indeed, the whole witness proclaimed and told forth in all the letters that the apostles then wrote to these churches that were established as they go about the Acts of the Apostles. The apostles are not going to run off and talk about their own glory they're not going to proclaim a message of spirit-empowered wonders, even though they do get up to that. They're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak about Jesus Christ and him crucified, resurrected, ascended and returning. What does a spirit-filled church look like? People ask today. What does a spirit-filled church look like? Well... We might look at this book of Acts and think not one that draws attention to its own giftings, not one that draws attention to its own miraculous signs that it's doing, but one that is fearlessly and relentlessly preaching Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, ascended and returning. And the appropriate response to that that the apostles are going to call people to, as we'll see, is to repent and believe the gospel, putting our trust in the crucified, resurrected, ascended and returning Jesus Christ and thereby being forgiven unto eternal life in his name. And again, people today want to know, what does a spirit-filled life look like? Well, one that has been granted a saving conviction in Jesus Christ and a new identity as one who's been brought into Jesus' house and one that is being reshaped for that destiny by the Holy Spirit. These are the works of the Holy Spirit. This is a spirit-filled life. This is the witness and the call to response that the apostles are now going to go and take to the world for the next 28 chapters. To Jerusalem, to start with, to all Judea and Samaria as they continue, and to the ends of the earth. And as another aside, if I can have another aside moment, it occurs to me that in this little intro to Acts, these 11 verses, uh, we pretty much have the basic elements of the Apostles' Creed which we plan to look at in our teaching segment later this year. Uh, and whatever isn't flagged here in these 11 verses is going to come out along the way. Or it was covered more detail in Luke's first book. In short, Luke alone in his two books has given us enough material to reconstruct or construct this, this Apostles' Creed that we say together. And not just us, but Christians throughout history. This thing dates back in one way or another to the second century. This is what we believe as Christians. I don't need to read it out to you. I'm sure you know it. You walk past it every Sunday in the foyer. It's printed on one of those banners. Uh, that's what we believe with Christians throughout all history. And as I say, we can sniff out most of the creedal ingredients there in these 11 verses, opening up this book of Acts, in this little bridge section between what Luke has already told us and what he's now going to tell us. The apostolic witness that Luke has documented for us and which he's pointing to in this little intro is the foundation of our Christian faith. 
As we journey through this story of the house that Jesus built, or as we should say, the house that Jesus is building, we all need to work out, as I say, our own place in the story. If you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, then you're part of his family. There is a room for you in his home. Your salvation has been secured by the Lord uh, of all creation uh, who, who took on our human form and died for our sins. The one who has been raised from the dead, the one who has ascended to the throne, the one who has all power and authority and dominion right now. He has secured your salvation. If your trust is in him, then peace be with you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, as the Apostle Peter says. Enjoy this series. Let it be as comfort for your soul to know that you are in Jesus' house. If you haven't yet put your trust in Christ, then please come along on the journey with us. Read, it, read ahead with us as, as we go through this story in the weeks and months coming up. Tune into the story. Listen to that apostolic witness. Listen to what these apostles go and proclaim to the ends of the earth under the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen and, 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 and lock in what this book is all about. Jesus Christ died for your sins. And he has not just been raised from the dead. He is ascended and seated on the throne. And all power and authority and dominion has been given to him. And it is him who will come and, tr and judge the living and the dead. His house will be completed at the end. And you need to find yourself in it. Enjoy the story. But let it bring salvation to your soul if you haven't yet put your trust. Let it bring salvation to your soul in the name of Jesus Christ. As we work through this book together as a church, we need to keep our, our minds focused on that truth, on the, on, the, on the central theme of the book of Acts, this, this understanding that it is Jesus who is building his church. That's why the Holy Spirit was sent in his name to bring us all to Jesus and to reshape us all to be more like Jesus. Keep that in our hearts as we uh, head into a new year together and as we think of all the things we might get up to together as a church family. We are Jesus' family. Keep that in your heart. Keep it in focus uh, in our heads even, even just the, the, the administrative and technical stuff we need to do. Six months or whatever out of an AGM when we took forward a step of faith. Let's reflect on the fact that Jesus has actually built this congregation. He has caught us up to that step we took in faith. Jesus has done this growth. Keep it in mind as we think leading up to the next AGM, what next step we might take in faith. And whatever step we do take, let's make sure again it is done in his name. Because this is his church. We need to keep that in focus as we minister to each other day by day and week by week as a church. We need to keep it in focus as we reach out to others who haven't heard this good news yet about salvation in Jesus. Like at Brookton this past week where a group of us were fortunate enough to go and, and plant seeds, where some of them still are this morning actually, out there in Brookton. Praise the Lord that none of us are sitting here or doing any of this under our own steam or to serve our own ends. The house does not rest on us. Praise the Lord. Jesus is building it. 
We sit here as Jesus' people and we sit here as part of Jesus' church. Jesus has gathered us together and, and he's doing his work through us by the Holy Spirit. He's doing his work in us by the Holy Spirit. All of the glory for all of this will go to him. Here's a parable for you. I'm hooked on this one. And Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. We are called into the fields to work, but the kingdom of God is as if God himself gives the growth. Because he does. As the Apostle Paul explained to us in in our reading in Corinthians this morning, we've got to keep that in focus. And we've got to keep that in focus as as we continue to meet together and, and pray for others. As we pray for other churches around us, for example, and some of them not travelling so well at the moment. Some who, uh, for whom the, the fields look barren and, and the work seems futile. We must keep our eyes on this. Our temporary institutions and structures will come and go. Today we meet in these four walls, tomorrow we might meet somewhere else, but not one person will be lost. Jesus is building the church. And so too as we pray for friends and family, or the society that we live in, or the nation generally, where in so many cases people seem to have hardened their hearts forever against God. We must also remember that bigger picture. Our loved ones, our society at large can do this or that, but in the end God will save to himself exactly whom he intends to save to himself. Jesus is building the church. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit to do this. That's why the apostles have got to wait for the Holy Spirit because it is God's work. It is God's building. It is God's doing and there will be no mistakes. We might be refocused by this book of Acts as we spend a bit of time in it. It'll be saving for some of us. It'll be healing for some of us. It'll be liberating for our souls. So let any hardened hearts hear the good news of the gospel witness in this book and receive Jesus Christ as their eternal saviour. Let any heavy hearts come along on this journey and be set free. Receive the good reminder that this is Jesus' work. It's his building. It's his church. And let every heart simply learn to live with with eyes fixed on those two poles that we're living in between. The fact that Jesus is ascended on high and all of the power and authority and dominion is now his. And that he's the one who's coming back to judge the living and the dead. In the meantime, we are called to trust in him and then to join him in his work our privilege to join in his mission by by proclaiming that truth, that gospel, as he continues to build his church.